take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 25. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18 today. Genesis 25. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the blue one in front of you. And you know what? I don't know what page it's on. It's not in the bulletin today, but it's in there. It's right after Genesis 24. You'll find Genesis 25. So we are wrapping up this segment of Genesis. So we've been tracking with Abraham since chapter 12. And today we are going to see his life through to the end. And I'm, I'm excited. I, I'll be honest, I wasn't at first when I saw this passage. But I, I got excited as I studied it. And I'll share a little bit more about why. So let's read it together first. Genesis 25, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Leharoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things that we believe strongly here at Chapelwood is that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that this book is unlike any other book. This is not just a book about God. There are lots of those that are really, really good. But this is not just a book about God. This is a book by God. And because of that, we hold that every single passage, every single sentence, every single word is a priceless treasure and is meant to be a help 
to us. In the words of 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so far, that all sounds great, right? Until you come to a passage like this. If we're in Romans 8 or we're reading a psalm, you're like, amen, all of it's good. Then you read a list of Nebaioth and Leterim and you're like, it's all good for us, right? At first glance, this feels like a passage that we would be just better off skipping. Not much here. And yet, here we are not skipping it. Why? For two reasons. One I just gave you. Because we believe this is the word of God. And that it's profitable for us. So that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So when we say that, we mean it. We mean that passages like this are profitable. Therefore, are good. They're doing something. They help us see something and believe something so that you and I can be equipped to live the way God called us to live. The second reason we're not skipping it is because at Chapelwood, we want to be diggers, not rakers. I've shared this quote, I think, a long time ago, but I want, it, I want to bring it back because I want this quote to be one that defines how we read and study our Bibles here at Chapelwood. When it comes to reading hard books or hard passages, one of my former pastors used to say this. He used to say, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might get diamonds. Raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might get diamonds. In other words, when we just skim over the surface of text, we only get the stuff laying right on top, like leaves on the ground. But sometimes we, we need to get our hands dirty. We need to dig a bit to really unearth the treasures hidden in a passage. So while Genesis 25 might just seem like a pile of leaves at first, I think there's some diamonds hidden in here. Truths that are meant to help you and me trust God more this morning. See, as we come to the end of Abraham's life in this passage, it forces us to look back at his life. And what defined Abraham's life more than anything was the fact that he lived in what I'm calling the in-between. Okay, he lived in the in-between. He lived between receiving the promises of God and receiving their fulfillment. His life was constantly shaped by looking back to what God had said he's going to do and waiting, looking forward in faith to when God would actually do it. He lived in-between. Now, some of the promises Abraham got to taste, right? He saw their partial fulfillment. But we know that he died without seeing their full fulfillment. For Abraham, God's promises were already fulfilled in part, but not yet in full. And here's why that's helpful for you and for me. Because, friends, that's where we live today. We live in the already, not yet. We live between the promise and the fulfillment. And here at Christmas, we especially remember this because we live between the first coming of Christ as a man and as our Savior and the second coming of Christ as the King of glory. We know and are reminded every Advent that we are an in-between people. And one of the great things about this series that we're wrapping up in Genesis 
and even about this passage this morning, is that Abraham shows us how to both live and die between promise and fulfillment. And the key to living and dying between promise and fulfillment shouldn't be a surprise. It's faith. And that's what we focus on with Abraham in every account of his life. And it's going to be no different today as we look at his death. So this morning we're going to look at this passage a little bit differently. We're going to, we're going to look for six diamonds, right? I said there might be diamonds in here. We're going to look for six diamonds that shine with the faithfulness of God's promises. So we're not necessarily going to work straight through it. So instead, picture like mining. We're not just going to go in a straight. We're just going to dig around. We're going to dig around in this text and we're going to unearth the diamonds that are buried in here. So we're going to look to see these promises that are already not yet. So here's, here's a stab at an outline. So this is meant more for your sake than mine, in case you're wondering, where is he and where is he going? This is kind of a map. We're going to talk about these promises and how they're already not yet. How Abraham would be the father of many nations, how he'd receive offspring, all the nations would be blessed in him. We're going to come back to that offspring. Then we're going to talk about land and end with blessing. So you can see it kind of starts with a bookend and then it kind of works sequentially, but we're just going to dig around. So let's just jump right in. You'll see how we're doing this, I think. Now, if you remember when we started the series back in chapter 12, I kept having to focus intentionally on calling this man Abram, right? It was really challenging for me. And just about the time I learned it, his name got changed. We had to call him Abram because that was what his name was when God called him. But then in chapter 17, when God established his covenant with Abram, he changed his name to Abraham. Why did he do that? Because God's promise had been expanded to not just make Abraham into a great nation, but to make him the father of a multitude of nations. Listen to God's word in Genesis 17. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God says here, listen, Abraham, this is better than you thought it was going to be. It's not just nation, it's going to be nations. God's plan for Abraham's line was a global plan, a plan for all the nations. It was going to involve not just Israel, but each and every one of the nations. And many of these nations that would one day be impacted would trace their origin back to this aging patriarch who only had two sons by age 100. So lots of nations are going to say, where did you guys get started? Well, there's this old guy named Abraham. He was 100 years old and he only had two sons. And yet somehow all these nations find their roots in him. How could that be? I mean, how could that be? If That seems unlikely if you're being kind. And it seems impossible if you're being honest. And yet what do we find here at the end of Abraham's life in verses 1 to 4? We see that at some point, Abraham had taken another wife, or sometimes called his concubine, and had six more sons, who then had more sons themselves. So if you count them up in verses 1 to 4, by the time you get to the end, you've already got 16 additional offspring. But that's not all. Okay, that's the first part. Now go down to the end of the passage. Because what do we find in 12 to 16? We find that Abraham's son Ishmael also had several offspring. 
In fact, what we see is that he had 12 sons who all became princes. Now, why would that be significant? Why does it mention that? Well, because God promised to do exactly that back in chapter 17. Listen to 1720. God said, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. We're going to see over and over again in this passage, you're going to hear promise after promise after promise that God keeps. And here at the end of Abraham's life, what we see is that God has already begun to fulfill this promise. This old man who looked like he might never have any children now has a full family tree. Between Keturah's line at the front and Ishmael's line at the back, throw in Isaac, we can already in this text count 30 people who are descended from Abraham. Like we thought the line might end with him for a long time. And now here at his death, we've got 30 people. The account of Abraham's death in the middle in verses 7 to 11 is bookended intentionally, I think, by these two groups of descendants to help us see very clearly God is doing it. God hasn't forgotten. He's giving Abraham abundant descendants and making him the father of a multitude of nations. You say, that's awesome. But listen, 30 is a long way from what he was promised, right? God didn't say, you're going to have a good, decent-sized family. No, no, no. What did God tell him? God told Abraham back in chapter 13 that he would make his offspring as the dust of the earth. He said, so that if one can count the dust... So your offspring can be counted. Then in chapter 15, in case Abraham wasn't getting it, he said, hey, go outside, number the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. So here at the end of Abraham's life, what do we see? Yes, we see a miraculous number of offspring. Like we thought it might be zero and here there's 30. That's amazing. But not as many as the stars. In other words, what we see is that God's promises about multiplying his offspring and making him the father of many nations was already happening, but not yet completely fulfilled. So that's the promise to be a father of many nations. But then in verses 5 to 6, we also learn that not all of these who are descended from Abraham are counted as his offspring. Look at verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, that'd be Keturah and Hagar, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So here we see this this very stark contrast. There's a clear line of difference between Isaac and And all the other sons. Abraham, now don't miss this. Abraham was kind to all of his sons. His other sons, he gave them all gifts. But then he sent them away. Why would he do that? Why would he send them away? Well, it's because only Isaac would be his true heir. He's the one to whom Abraham gave all he had, it says. The other sons received presents. But only Isaac received the promises. He would be the one to inherit the blessing. And all this was to fulfill what God had said, that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
See, Isaac is the one, the son that Abraham had waited so long for. Isaac is the son that God promised would come, even when it seemed the way God said he would come was impossible. Isaac was the son who came not by man's strength, nor by his plan or cunning or efforts, but through a miraculous birth to show that this child was a gift of God. Isaac is the one who was born to a woman who, humanly speaking, should have never conceived a child. And Isaac is the one through whom all God's promises would be fulfilled. That is why his father Abraham gave him all that he had. Now hopefully there's bells going off. Because isn't this what we celebrate at Christmas? How one day another promised son would come. One that we waited so long for. The long expected son who came in a way that seemed impossible. Through a miraculous birth to a woman who humanly speaking should never have conceived a child. This long-expected Jesus was the one through whom all God's promises would be fulfilled. And that is why God, his Father, gave him all he had. In John 3.35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Or what does Hebrews 1 say about this Son? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. God has given all things, all that he has, to his son Jesus, because he is the one in whom all the promises of God will find their yes and amen. The crazy part about it for us, friends, is that if you are in Christ, listen to what Romans 8 says to us. Says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we, you and me, undeserving, messy, sinful people, we, if we are in Christ, are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But did you hear what God just gave Christ? All things. Jesus gets all things, and if you are in Jesus, all things are yours, Paul says. This is staggering. Like, I don't care what is on your Christmas list this year. You could get all of it multiplied ten times over. You will not get all things. But in Jesus, God gave us all things. We are heirs of all things in Christ because God has given all he has to his Son. And here in Genesis, we see a similar dynamic at play. The son of promise is given all things. Meanwhile, what about these other kids? Well, the other sons, these other nations, are sent away to the east. Did you notice how it stresses the east? Look there, it kind of awkwardly says, eastward to the east country. It's like, east. <clears throat> east, I said. Now, why is it making such a big deal? Well, it's important for two reasons. One, if you remember from earlier in Genesis, back near the beginning, being sent away to the east meant being sent away from God's presence and his promises. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden to the east. Cain, after he kills Abel, is sent away to wander the land to the east. The Tower of Babel takes place 
in the east. Now we see these other sons, other than Isaac, are sent to the east, cut off from God and the promises. So these sons, these sons moved to the east and they became various nations. They all had descendants who had descendants who had descendants and they became different nations. And they were all settling through this eastern land throughout the Arabian Peninsula and what was once Persia. But lest you think this is the end, there's good news for these nations. Because one of God's other promises to Abraham was that in him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, including nations that were sent away for a time. I say for a time because later in Scripture we see that these same peoples won't always be cut off from God. Even though they were sent away and they were far from God, one day everything would change. That day is prophesied in Isaiah 60. And if you have your Bible, flip over there because I want you to see this. Isaiah chapter 60. Now as you're turning there, we're going to start at the beginning. And we're probably more familiar with how this chapter starts. In fact, we just used it, I think, a couple weeks ago for a call to worship. Isaiah chapter 60 starts off this way in verse 1. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So we know that part, and that's glorious promise. Isaiah is saying here, listen, God's going to do something, and he's going to put his glory and his beauty on his people in such a way that the nations are going to see it and be attracted and say, we want what you have, and they're going to come to the brightness of your rising. That's what the nations are going to do. Well, wait a minute. What nations will come to this light? Drop down to verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Did you catch those, those names? It mentions Midian, Ephah, and Sheba. Those were all mentioned in our passage as descendants of Keturah. Then it also mentions Kedar and Nebaioth. Those were sons of Ishmael. So what we're seeing in Isaiah 60, it's saying all these nations that get sent away in Genesis 25 will one day come back. They were sent away, but now they're back to worship the Lord, which is amazing, right? Well, it gets better. Did you notice in Isaiah 60 what these peoples from the east bring to worship the Lord in verse 6? They bring gold and frankincense. Where have we heard this before? How about Matthew 2? Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from where? 
from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then later, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These people from the east come to worship the Lord. They bring gold and frankincense, just like Isaiah 60 saying, and they fall down before Jesus, the promised Son, the one in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The news the angels announced that first Christmas to the shepherds was, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that's good news, but they're saying, well, what about, what about for me? But this news, the angels said, was good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all the people, even the people who were once not part of the line of promise, even people who were far from God and had no hope, Gentiles like you and me, now they, when Jesus comes, now they could be part of the promises. They could be part of the blessings. But, but how? How can this be? How can other nations come into the blessing of Abraham's people. Only one way. Through the offspring that was promised to Abraham. Listen to Paul explain this to us in Galatians 3. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the, justify the Gentiles, or the nations, by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He goes on and says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. Do you hear how everything we've been talking about in Genesis has been pointing us forward to the one offspring of Abraham who would come to fulfill all the promises? The one in whom all the nations would be blessed. In fact, what we celebrate at Christmas is that Jesus came to provide a way for us to come back to God. You and I, friends, we were all sent away because of our sin. Our rebellion drove us far away from God. But in his great love, God sent Jesus to come get us and bring us back. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians. He says, remember, remember that you were at that time 
separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, that's us, church. If you're here and you were not of Jewish ethnicity, this was your story. We were among the people sent away. We had no relationship to the covenants of promise. We were not in the line of promise. We had no hope. We were without God in the world. But then Paul says, but now. That's what was true of you. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus is the true and better lamb that God provided on the mountain to be sacrificed instead of us. He took our sin and our guilt and our shame and he bled for our betrayal so that now by his blood, we no longer have to be far from God. There's no, there's no estrangement, no distance in a relationship. I know at holidays, there's all kinds of weird family dynamics for many, many people. There's those relationships that feel irreparably broken. There's distance. There's like no way you can get back. And that was us and God. Christmas would have been a horrible time of year because we were estranged from God. But then he sent Jesus. And Jesus, by his blood, brought us from far away and brought us back to the table. And so, no, 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 you're in the family. You belong here, not because you've earned it or deserved it, not because of works done by you in righteousness, but because of his great mercy. So we can celebrate Christmas as a family because Jesus came, because Jesus died for us. Now we have hope. Now we have God. Friends, I hope you're getting a taste of how this passage in Genesis 25 is a deep mine filled with gospel diamonds. Okay, back to our friend Abraham. In verses 7 and 8, we find Abraham's obituary of sorts. Look there. It says, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So we see that Abraham lived a good long life. And even in that seemingly mundane detail, we see God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Because back in chapter 15, verse 15, listen to what God promised Abraham. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Just like what God promised. What we see is that even in death, God is keeping his promises to Abraham. And I love that phrase it uses. It says he was an old man and full of years. That's a great phrase because that word for full is often translated satisfied. It doesn't just mean full like you fill up a jar. It means satisfied. It's the kind of fullness, the kind of satisfaction you get after you've had a good meal. You're full and happy and content. And that's Abraham here as he dies. He's satisfied with the years he spent as a sojourner in a land of promise. But now, he's ready to go to his true home. He's not grasping for a little bit more. He's like, I'm full of years. I've enjoyed this. God has been good to me. 
but I'm ready to go to my true home. He's able to leave in peace and hope because he anticipates the fulfillment of God's promises. He knows he has a better place coming. As Pastor Ben talked about with Sarah in chapter 23, in the same way, Abraham shows his faith here in God's promises by what is done with his body when he dies. He's buried here in the cave that he purchased and where he buried his wife Sarah. Later, if you go on in Genesis, this same tomb is where Isaac and Rebekah will one day be buried. And after that, so will Jacob and Leah. What we see is that if, if Abraham lived 175 years, as it says here, that means he spent 100 years sojourning in the land of promise. He spent 100 years in Canaan. But after all that time, 100 years, this tomb is the only piece of land that he owns. And this tomb serves as both a monument to God's faithfulness in the past, but also to Abraham's hope for the future. See, his hope was not simply in this little plot of ground, but in a better land, in a heavenly one. Remember what we read about this Abraham in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He and Sarah both died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. From the moment God called him to the time he died, Abraham's life was marked by faith in God's promise of a better land, a heavenly city, a true home. It wasn't just a quaint thought that he dusted off to provide a little comfort when someone died, saying, oh, there's a better place. And then it was meaningless the rest of the time. This hope defined how Abraham lived. Not just what he said when someone died, but how he lived. The hope of a homeland with God shaped and controlled Abraham's day-to-day -day living. He knew that he was just a stranger in exile on the earth. And that's why he trusted God all the way to the end, even though he hadn't received the fullness of things promised. And the only land he owned was a cemetery plot. Because his hope was in something better. Something permanent. Something that money couldn't purchase, but only God could prepare. So as we look at our friend Abraham, I think he stands as a challenge to you and me this morning. Is that the hope our lives are marked by? Again, not just something we say when we think of death or when someone has died, do we think of what comes next. Is our lives marked by a hope in this homeland? 
Because friends, if we are in Christ, our hope is not in getting a better house, but in having a better homeland. Our lives aren't driven by a desire to get to a better neighborhood, but to get to a heavenly city. Abraham shows us throughout these chapters how to live as strangers and exiles on the earth, already tasting part of God's promises, but not yet experiencing their fulfillment. One last quick note about Abraham's death. Notice in verse 8, it says he was gathered to his people. Well, what that can't mean is that it can't simply mean he was buried with his ancestors. Because the only other person in his tomb is Sarah. The rest of his people, so to speak, are buried back in Haran or in Ur. So when it says he was gathered to his people, the most likely meaning is that he was gathered to a living fellowship of the redeemed. A gathering of God's people eagerly waiting, just like us, for the second coming of the long-expected Jesus. As one commentator wrote, he said, The patriarch was gathered to his people until the day when the dust shall live again at the sound of the last trumpet and all the buried dead. Abraham and his people to whom he is gathered shall hear the voice of the Son of Man and shall come forth. Friends, the good news for Abraham and for us is that when Abraham died, his hope didn't. His hope lived on because his faith was in a God who is everlasting and whose promises stretch beyond the grave and into eternity. Finally, in verse 11, we see the passing of the baton from one generation to the next. Look there. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Laharoi. Abraham's story began with God's promise of blessing. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, he said this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what started this life of faith for Abraham. God said, trust me, and I will give you blessing after blessing, land, offspring, multitudes of nations. You'll be a source of blessing to the nations. And when Abraham dies, all that blessing is now passed to Isaac, his son. God blessing Isaac in verse 11 is the affirmation that all that God had promised is still continuing on, even though Abraham is gone. God's plans and purposes to bless the world through this line of promised believers is still marching on. And now this channel of blessing will flow through Isaac as the heir of the promises and a blessing. And that blessing of Isaac, if you keep reading in Genesis, that's going to form the theme of your next ten chapters. That now we see the blessing play out in the life of Isaac. And the focus shifts away from Abraham to Isaac. So as we close this part of Genesis, as we close this series and this passage, what have we seen from Abraham in these 14 chapters covering his life? We've seen that he is the father of all who believe. 
He showed us how to live as pilgrims in this world, waiting for our promised home. He showed us how to live and die between the promise and the fulfillment. He showed us how to believe God even when his promises seem impossible. He showed us how to have faith that the Lord will always provide. He showed us how to trust that in God, our reward will be very great. So Chapelwood, let's do what Abraham did his whole life. Let's walk by faith and not by sight. As the offspring of Abraham, let's trust every promise of God because he is faithful. And as we live as strangers and exiles in this world, let's fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. So the race is finished and we're home at last. Would you pray with me? Father, would you make that so? Would you... Equip us with everything good that we may do your will, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Would you let us learn from our forefather Abraham what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight? Would you grow our trust in you and in your promises? Would we bank our lives and our hopes increasingly on your word and what you've said you will do? Would you keep us from looking to other sources of hope, things that will let us down. Instead, look to you who will never let us down. God, would you keep us walking forward together by faith in the promised Son to whom you've given all things until we finally reach the land, the city, the country, and the home that you have prepared for us. Keep us on that journey and keep us all the way to the end. We pray in his name and all God's people said, amen.